happy Sunday, everyone. We're in the middle of going through one of Jesus's primary teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, um, I encouraged all of us as a little bit of homework to think about our own Ten Commandments. One of the teachings from the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus goes over several of the commandments and encourages us not just to look at sort of the letter of the law, not just to look at literally what it meant, but really to go within and to understand that anything that has the appearance of evil or a transgression in the world, where does it have to start before something bad happens? It starts up here in our own minds. And so, so he cautions us or advises us to look first within our own selves before we judge others, to look first within our own hearts and our own minds to see if might be, that might be the source of some of the trouble we see in the world. And, you know, he expands upon that. And, and, and we're going to go forward this week as we even talk about the idea of evil. And so let me read uh, Matthew, uh, starting uh, verse 38 here as he starts to begin talking about this idea of evil in general, not just breaking a commandment, not just doing a particular thing that might cause trouble in the world, but the overall concept of evil. He says, You have heard it said that there should be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from even the one who wishes to borrow from you. Now this, of course, I can just imagine the crowd on that day. Because very much the law at the time was an eye for an eye. Literally, 2,000 years ago, if you were caught in a meaningful way stealing, you very likely would have had one of your hands cut off. 2,000 years ago, if you were caught as a peeping Tom, literally one of your eyes, maybe both of them would have been put out. The law of the land a few thousand years ago was... The measure to which you have committed some kind of an act of violence or criminal activity would be visited upon you directly in the same measure. So this was huge news. Here's Jesus basically saying, you know, if someone does you wrong, just turn the other cheek, just look the other way. He is talking about a fundamental change in the world. His belief, and I think any of you who have dealt with children before, which, and, and, and you know, maybe the consciousness of the world was kind of childlike in those days, I don't know. But any of you who have dealt with children before know that if you meet force with force, what happens? It just escalates, doesn't it? Right? You watch two kids. One pushes the one child. The other one pushes that child. The other one pushes back a little harder. The other one pushes back a little harder until one of them falls down. That one gets up and do you know what I mean? It's like to meet violence with violence, to meet discord with a greater degree of discord really is just providing an escalation here. And so first off, Jesus, I think, was saying, let's be sensible about this. When truly does violence do anything other than beget violence? And if we keep that up, are not we just saying there's going to be greater violence in the world? 
The other thing I believe that Jesus is saying here about not resisting evil is simply the idea that that which we are in non-resistance to, that which we choose to just look the other way, to turn the other cheek, will tend to just dissipate on its own. Do you know what I mean? There's something about us giving attention to something, even if we don't like it, even if it's patently troublesome to us. It's like the more attention we give it, kind of the bigger it gets. Have you ever been in a situation where something started out fairly small, troublesome, but fairly small, and then the family kind of talked about it, and suddenly this small event, suddenly everyone's taking polar sides on it, you know, well, obviously that was the wrong thing to do. Obviously you're to blame here. To where something small actually gets bigger, the more life we give it, the more attention we give it. And so on a couple of reasons here, I think Jesus' advice though perhaps surprising, was right on target for changing truly the atmosphere of life and justice in his time. So reading from Emmett Fox, who's doing a wonderful job of uh, doing some Bible interpretation here, I want just to read his take on this idea of not resisting evil. He says, This doctrine of resist not evil is the great metaphysical secret of all time, To the world, it sounds like moral suicide, the feeblest surrender to any form of aggression. But in the light of spiritual strategy, it is a revelation. Antagonize any situation, and you give it a power against yourself. But when you offer mental non-resistance, it will simply fade before you. So here's that idea, not of, uh, not of saying that what happened didn't happen, right? Now, we're not about denying, uh, denying the truth. I mean, I, I, mean, I mean, if someone treats you poorly, I'm not going to just turn the other cheek and say it didn't happen. And above all, I think, you know, in the physical world out here, we still need to keep ourselves and our families safe. You know, this isn't saying that we should enjoy someone slapping us on one cheek and turn the cheek, right? The idea of turning the cheek is to be in that place of passive resistance, that place of non-resistance, just allowing it the energy to dissipate on its own. So we keep ourselves safe. We, we do things, if it's necessary, to be in a place of physical safety. And then we just let it go. We simply allow the transgression to go, not giving it any energy, not giving it any power over us, just letting it be. All right, now, if you thought that might have been a little controversial in its day. What happens next? Next, Jesus decides to tell us we should love our enemies. And I got to tell you, there really would have been a stir in the audience on that day. But I managed to take a a little lighthearted look about loving our enemies with a joke. So the minister's sermon went on and on about, this sort of sounds like me, I apologize ahead of time. The The minister's sermon went on and on about how important it was to forgive people, to reach out to them. And he was even quoting from the Sermon on the Mount on loving our enemies. But he noticed that some of the folks, especially those in the back row, were beginning to look a little sleepy as the hour wore on. And so he decided he would make the talk a little more interactive. He said, is there anyone in this church who can honestly say they have no enemies? Well, initially, not a hand went up. 
But eventually, a, a very elderly woman in her 80s or 90s raised her hand in the back row. Well, please come up, he said. Tell us your spiritual secret. How have you lived such a long and righteous life with no enemies? Well, dutifully, the senior slowly walked up to the front of the room. She turned, held the microphone, and brightly said, I outlived them. <laughs> And you, and you know what? It's kind of not bad advice. And I don't necessarily mean, well, and I don't necessarily mean that you have to live extraordinarily long so that, so that your perceived enemies pass away, although that's one method. But if you think about it, outliving the transgression, and that can happen right away. We can outlive what happened to us or what someone else did. We can outlive the offense or the slander. We can outlive the neighbor that treats us badly just by letting it go. We have that choice. We can keep ourselves safe. We can do what's necessary for our family if physical harm is involved. And then the easiest way to outlive it is just to let it go. We have that power within ourselves if our heart will lead us there. All right, but I want to read about this idea of, uh, of enemies then, out, again out of Matthew. Now we're in uh, verse 43. So Jesus, again, uh, Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard it said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You are a child of the Father in heaven, and he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So who is the enemy here? Certainly in a literal sense, they may be the people and places in our world that cause us harm. You know, There may be someone who physically might be a kind of an enemy in our life. But you know what? Often in the science of mind center, we like to go beyond the physical sense because I don't think that very many of us, if, in fact, if I, was doing the, if I was doing the joke and said, you know, everyone here raised their hands that have lots of enemies, probably not very many people look at it that way anymore. Do you know what I mean? Not many of us would actually say, oh yeah, here's my list of enemies. Do you know what I mean? Because that's sort of not the way we think. But metaphysically, i got to tell you, oh, do we have enemies. And every morning when I'm brushing my teeth, I'm looking at number one in the mirror. Jesus is asking us on that metaphysical side of life to really look into our own hearts and our own minds. And i got to tell you, when I look back on my life, the times that I was in the most trouble the times that I felt most desperate, the times that I was really gone haywire and wrong, do you know who the enemy in my life was? It was my own decisions. It was my own faulty thinking. It was my own innocence, perhaps, sometimes, about how the world worked, so a lack of knowledge, certainly, but it was right here. And if I would try to sort of get away from it, you know, if I left one job behind because I thought the boss was my enemy, or if I left one relationship behind because I thought that partner was my enemy, I got to tell you, I was taking my enemy with me. 
<laughs> right? It just would show up again in the next job. I'd think, how many different bosses are all the same? <laughs> I, right? Do you know what I mean? I'd think, how can I keep picking the same lousy person to date, even though they have a different face, right? And the trouble was... The thinking, the errors of thinking, the, the true enemy, the true um, evil, if you will, in my life was my own thoughts about how things worked and about what I thought was true for me. If there is an enemy here, so often we must look inward. So we're going to look at this idea of evil and enemies on two levels. Certainly, on the physical level, there may be someone out here on the planet that doesn't have your best interest at heart. And we need to look at them even as we turn the other cheek, even as we extend a hand of love to them. We have to recognize maybe this isn't the healthiest person to be around. Do you know what I mean? Maybe this person doesn't have their best interest in my heart, and that's okay. Jesus isn't telling us we need to like everyone or marry everyone, right? He's just saying that we need to extend a hand of love just as we would wish the universe to extend a hand of love to us. Treating everyone with that namaste spirit of, I salute the God that's in you, even as I request to be treated in that same measure. And when we treat each other with love, with respect, regardless of what the actions are, we are elevating the planet even as we elevate our own being. And that idea of non-resistance, I think, falls into, into a graphic relief here too. Because if we're resisting the people in our lives that perhaps cause us trouble now and then, we're resisting life itself, and we're saying it's okay to be resistant by the universe. We're saying, in fact, that it's okay for other people to shut me out and close me up and box me in, and I don't think any of us really want that. So by all means, we use discrimination around the people that we want to keep close to us. We want to have the people closest to us and the most frequently close to us that are of a like mind that will honor us and love us and, and behave in a way that fits in with our own ideals and what's important to us. And there may be indeed a whole class of people out there that don't have anything to do with that, and we're going to extend a hand of love to them as well. Don't have to live with them, don't have to be friends with them, but we're going to honor them and show them the respect that all of God's creatures deserve even as we wish that for us. And I got to tell you, there have been times in my uh, past when I have not been on my best behavior. There have been times in my past when I would be that one person you'd be going, let's not have him dating our son. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> let's not have this guy involved in our life. There have been times when I have been that person. And thank heavens, the universe did not go with an eye for an eye. Thank heavens the people around me were merciful. Thank heavens the people around me could see the promise of love in this young man. Let us share that same mercy with all of our fellows. Let us extend that hand of love, even when it doesn't look right, even when someone's given us a bad time, even when someone maybe, and you can tell, doesn't have our best interest in hand. We keep ourselves safe. And at the same time, we extend a hand in love. We recognize that there too walks one of the faces of God. 
Back to this idea now of, le- of evil in our own thinking, evil in our own thoughts, when we're our own worst uh, enemy, if you will. So often, we're our worst enemy when we don't realize that it's our own thinking that's getting us in trouble. And I want to use an example from my early career. About uh, 30 years ago, I was hired on at the telephone company. And I think it was primarily because I could type really fast. i got to admit it. There wasn't anything more spectacular about me 30 years ago than I was a really good typist. And they put me typing up service orders. So, like, you phone into the telephone company and you say, I'm moving across town and here's my new address. And, And what you didn't know is I was madly typing away as fast as I could, hopefully getting all the information right so that the installers would go to the right places and the phone bill would be quoted correctly and, you know, and all of that stuff. And I was really good at it. I was a fast typist. And about two years into it, uh, my supervisor one day came and said, you know, across the way there's an opening for a supervisor and I think you should put in for this. And so I did. And I had 12 people working for me. And because I was so good at typing in these orders and knew how to do them with great accuracy and great speed, I decided that I would make those 12 people be like little carbon copies of me. Because I knew that if they all did it exactly the same way that I did it, just as fast and just as accurate using the same techniques, that, oh my gosh, we would be so productive. And you know what? It kind of worked. Everyone, of course, pretty much hated me. But it worked to an extent, at least. And then one day, my boss's boss came to me and said, you know, if you'd be willing to move to the call center across town, we can give you a little bit of a promotion. I thought, all right, I wouldn't mind a little more money. So my first day there, I discovered I had 38 people working for me. And a moment of terror kind of crept in because I thought to myself, how am I going to control 38 people? How am I going to be able to kind of look over the work of 38 people and make them all be just as efficient and, uh, and, and smart as I was? And I got to tell you, my first few weeks there did not go very well. People were unhappy and our productivity wasn't very good. And, and this was not going well. And I don't know why, but I have the presence of mind to think, well, there are other supervisors doing very well here. And I will check in with one of them. Well, so one of the supervisors, she was telling me about delegating authority and, and how people have to find their own rhythm of getting the work done. And once they're adequately trained, you know, you can kind of turn them loose. And well, I was kind of like, I was probably like this, <laughs> right? Because that's not what had worked for me in the past. You see, I had the idea that when I was a top performer, it was through controlling my environment. It was knowing the work on my particular desk and knowing how to do it and how to be accurate. And and I had every message that control was a good thing. The world changes on us, though. If we want to progress in this world, whether it's a promotion at work, whether it's getting closer to God, whether it's finding a relationship that's more meaningful and more honest and more loving... Don't you get the sense that throughout your life you've had promotions? If only, even if it's only on a spiritual sense, you know, that first relationship that really started working well, what a promotion. 
that first job where you really felt enthused and productive and knowing what you're doing. What a promotion in life. What a promotion in life to be a, a great parent. Or a, But much in the same way that my promotion required me to think differently. So when life has changes, we may need to throw out things that worked perfectly well before and recognize a higher truth in our own connection to spirituality in the world. What isn't working in your life right now? You know, we do these, uh, these Bible interpretations on three levels, and I, I sort of gave you the literal one by talking about how the, the law worked in the, in the ancient world, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then we talked about metaphorically what was talking about here, the, the shift from thinking about um, a retribution into the idea of an extending a hand of love, and that, that truly the evil often that we see out in the world is a reflection of what's going on right here. So what right now is going on in your world that looks like evil, that looks like something is being done unto you, if you will? Because I want to start off with just the littlest bit of homework here. If there is some kind of evil, if you will, or, or mistakes or, or thoughts and ideas that aren't working for you anymore in your heart and in your mind, it will outpicture in your life as trouble. So look in your life where there's trouble and then try to back it up, if you will, into some kind of thinking that maybe used to work for you, like control used to work really well for me. And, and thank heavens I learned in that job that you just need to give up the idea of controlling the world because there's no way. I can barely control my own life, right? I can barely control the thoughts that are going on in my own life. There's no way that can control can be extended out into the world successfully. What thinking may have worked for you before that simply isn't working any longer? I'd like to end today by talking about the bigger topic of evil in general. What is evil? And, I, and the way I approached this was kind of looking at the opposite first. So I defined good Good is what promotes life and love, joy, peace, harmony, freedom. You know, anything that makes us feel expansive and, and greater, anything that, that um, highlights the goodness and the love in the universe, all of this is what I would say is good. I don't, however, believe that there is some kind of demonic force out there that is trying to take that away or tempting me to do rotten things. Rather, I think based on my own experience and on the Sermon on the Mount, that rather is evil me just not knowing how to do things in a very effective way. Me making lots of mistakes. Me not having the education around different areas in my life. Me not having the experience of, of how to work well with people or how to, uh, to bring abundance in my life or how to be a good father or whatever it might be. So often those things that seem patently like evil, are they anything more than bad choices? So my, defini e my definition of evil is simply the thoughts, the ideas, and the actions that take away or limit 
qualities of good in the world. It isn't a force of evil. It isn't some, uh, some tempter or temptress out there that's trying to make me do wrong things. It's me just making bad choices. It's me just having to show up in a way that is not very supportive of life and the people I love around me. Nothing more troublesome than that. So it's not, uh, it's not a force, it's not a devilish power, it's people using bad judgment, it's people choosing poorly, it's people limiting themselves and others, and perhaps it is us thwarting our own ways of being. I love um, Sharon often in the introduction or the welcoming, she says that she's here to help people understand exactly who they are. It's that idea of there's something in us that is born out of God, something that knows itself, something that recognizes the innate goodness, the innate beautiful spirit that is in each person, regardless of what we've done to maybe try to cover it up, regardless of the mistakes that we have made, regardless of the poor decisions we have made, something in us is full of God, full of good, And when we tap into that, when we align ourselves with it, when we recognize our true ability at bringing love and light and joy to the planet, there is no stopping us. And any appearance of evil, any even thought of of something like evil or sin vanishes before the face of love. It vanishes before the face of goodness and light and love. So to summarize Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount this week, he moved his followers from a place of retaliation into a place of non-resistance. No longer an eye for an eye. Instead, extending the hand of love. He also taught us to recognize and love the godness that is in every person. And not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's useful for us and for them and for the planet, right? This, is, this isn't, again, a, it isn't a love thy neighbor as thyself as a commandment as it is practical advice. When we love our neighbor, it means that the universe will extend love to us even when we're misbehaving. When we love the people around us that are, are good and whole and sometimes broken and hurt, it means that no matter where we are on our path, that same, that same hand of love and non-judgment can be extended to us. So, so when we do this, it's not just because we're going to behave and follow a commandment. It's for ourselves. It's for the planet. It's in order to keep this joy and this life and this love circulating in the world. That is why we extend this hand of love. So... Just one more word about the homework. So the homework has just two parts. One, what evil exists in your own life and in your own mind? And, and if evil is too harsh of a word, think of it just as mistakes even. What mistakes, what harmful things, what negative things are going on in your own heart and your own mind? And then I want to ask you, are you resisting them? Are you making them bigger by resisting them Or can you simply turn the other cheek? Can you simply say, yes, that is something that was true for me, and now I'm going to take a new path. I'm no longer going to um, 
you know, be controlling. I'm no longer going to fall under the auspices of being sad all the time. I'm no longer going to allow the universe to control me. I'm going to put that aside. I'm not going to beat myself up about it, right? Because even when the enemy is ourself, we can turn the other cheek. Even when the enemy is ourself, we extend the hand of love. So not to be self-critical. Instead, when we find those things wrong in our own thinking, in our own lives, we're going to use that as a piece of useful information. We're going to claim something different for ourselves. We're going to recognize instead that there is love present, that there is life present, that there is goodness present. And then we are going to just drop the appearance of evil. We're going to turn that other cheek and recognize that was then. This is now. I'm going to close with a final quote here from Emmaus Fox as he summarizes this discourse on evil. He says, Now if really we are the children of God, capable of eternal and flawless perfection, there can be no real power in evil. That is to say, with the right method of thinking, it can only be a matter of time before we assume our true condition of spiritual good. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence in this universe. I, I choose to call that thing God. And what I know about God is that it is good. It is that ultimate good. It is the joy and the peace and the love and the laughter. It is the wholeness and the, the abundance of the universe. It is all, truly, all things good. And this good is for me. Anything that would stand in my own life in the way of experiencing this good, I simply allow it to fade before me. I, I'm not in resistance to it. Um, as they say, stuff happens, and that's okay. But what I know is that it does not define me, that I can turn the other cheek when evil-like things happen and recognize that beyond it all and behind it all is God, is good, is love, is beauty, is joy, is every good thing. And as it is true for me, I know for each person in this room, there's a willingness to look within and, and root out thoughts of discord and disharmony, any evil-like thoughts that linger there, I say now and forever can be banished. And in their place, oh, that, that sweetness of the inner life, that joy of the indwelling God, <coughs> that beauty and permanence of who each person in this room truly, truly is. And so with great love, I release this prayer into the activity and action of the law. I know that each person here finds good, finds God in their lives now and forever. I let it be, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much. Thank you.